Ramp fiction is this idea I came up with many years ago, and it never came to fruition. It never happened, and it's one of those one of those ideas I thought was a really good idea, and for whatever reason, like I I never really pursued it, and no one else ever really pursued it. Um, but I, I talked about it many times over the years. I think there was even an episode of the Overnightscape called Ramp Fiction where where I talked about it. Um, but this was the idea that uh, that there, there could be a new kind of audio entertainment, which was similar to an audio drama, but instead of having something written down like an audio book and just reading the book or having a, a script that different you know voice actors read so it's like an audio drama right the idea is that just one person would kind of write just an outline of the story and then tell the story describe the story you know kind of like if you if you just watched a, a TV show and you were describing it to someone and just sort of giving them all the details right the idea that that could be the final product and I've been really interested in this this concept of when it comes to a creative arts right what is the final product and um, I was very struck many many years ago uh, this guy Brian Jude used to be on the channel here the Onsug and uh, he he was trying to make this movie called The Miracle Man and he had many kickstarters and Indiegogo's about it but and he was never able to make it as far as I as far as I know that just the project never happened but he did write the script, and he actually put together this event in Montclair, New Jersey, in, in a church, the Unitarian Church, I think, of Montclair, a full cast reading of the script. And I was in attendance. I was there in the pews of the church. I guess even though it's Unitarian, they still have pews. Can you have, what, what, what about having chairs? Can, can't they have, like, those stadium seating and those comfy chairs? No? I know. It's, I don't think church is meant to be comfortable, right? You need to be paying attention. I, th- I think people would just fall asleep if they had those kind of chairs, right? I don't know. But anyway, um, so he had like a full cast of people, like 20, 30 people, maybe 20 people reading the script, doing all the the voices and everything. And, and, and in the end, they're like, okay, well, we hope we can raise enough money to make this movie. And I was like, wait a minute, did you record that? Like, that could be a final product. But to him, it was not even... It was just a step on the way to making the final product, right? So this idea that, um, you know, all these stages are not the final product, but then when you finally make the movie, that's the final product, right? So that really struck me. So, like, the idea that, right, you you as the creator of the whatever, you can state what you, the final product is. So ramp fiction, well, the ramp fiction idea did eventually sort of morph sort of into my frivols idea p-h-r-i-v-l-s so this this is kind of like ramp fiction you know i've come up with so many ideas that are frivols it's completely disorganized there's no list of them or anything i just tell my idea on the show and then that's it the idea of a frivol is just talking about the idea as the final product so it is definitely related to ramp fiction and in that sense is definitely part of this conversation and i still do frivols i don't do them I only do them when the need arises, or I come up with an idea, and I need to state it. And I'm saying that me telling the idea is the final product, right? Um, and so a frivol is a final product. It's not just like an idea for something that's going to happen in the future, because you know, of all the different ideas I have, there's no way I could produce all these things as movies or TV shows. You know, obviously I don't. Ha- I don't have that kind of time or energy or money or whatever. You know. And not not all the ideas are that good anyway. No one, I don't think it would be a good idea to make them into a, into 
you know, a movie or a TV show, but just the idea itself can be a final product. You see the idea, right? But Ramp Fiction was sort of inspired by that experience I had in that church and um, definitely more formalized than uh, the Frivols, spelled P-H-R-I-V-L-S, if you're wondering. <coughs> anyway, uh, so the idea of Ramp Fiction is to take the model of uh, especially TV shows, right? Even though this would just be an audio, but the idea that um, especially now the streaming TV shows that we all know and love, right? The idea is that you you would use Ramp Fiction to create essentially like a TV show with episodes and seasons, right? Uh, but it, it, each episode would be... Uh, the creator of it just um, not writing it down but just jotting down notes and then just telling the story in you know it could be in a fairly rough fashion it's just off like what I'm doing right now I you know I'm not reading something off a piece of paper I thought of this topic to talk about and now I'm talking about this topic right so that would be sort of a major aspect of ramp fiction is that your uh you have some notes. You've jotted down the basics of the idea, but you're not reading anything. You, you, you may be looking at your notes, but you're you're just talking off the top of your head. This, of course, you know, is similar to, uh, you know, I remember my father used to tell us stories, it, not just reading out of a book, but he would just make up a story. Daddy, tell us a story. You know that kind of thing. And I, I just remember a couple of the ones he came up with. There's like like this saga of this like robot football player <laughs> named Perrier. And it was like he 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 was like a, a a rookie that joined the team, and he was so good. But then they found out Perrier was a robot. <laughs> and the other the other one was this this sort of like loser guy named Arnold Schlitzberger, who was like a janitor, and all of all of like the weird adventures he had and stuff. Oh man, I wish I, I wish obviously I wish I had recordings of that stuff. Obviously, I you know this is from like back in the seventies. My father would tell us these stories, but um. You know, talking about that kind of, just talking off the top of your head. You have an idea, but you're just making it up as you go along. Well, you don't even have to make it up as you go along. I, the idea of ramp fiction is that you will write the outline of the story, and then you'll just tell the story, right? So, in this sense, following the model of uh, a streaming television show, for example, you might have eight episodes or ten episodes or twelve episodes in a season, and you would announce the title, but it would just be you talking. You're not reading off a piece of paper. You're just telling the story. You have a little outline, right? And it, and it may each episode might only be a few minutes long, as so you just sort of describe the scenes and what's going on. And again, and beyond that, you know, you could just describe it, or you could do the character voices yourself, whatever. But the main thing is, it's not written down as a script. It's just. And I know this is something. I don't know how easy or hard it would be for someone to do this like just jo- like what does it mean to write down the outline of the story you know and then just tell the story without reading it off his, off a piece of paper right and then right that those recordings could be collected like if i had ever done it and the thing is i i have thought so much of, over the years of actually doing this but for some reason i never have and i and i have some thoughts about that and some theories about that but anyway um the idea is that, you you know, I could just do it on my show. Other people that have shows, you just do it on your show, whatever. 
and then but then you could repackage it you could just put it together as you know the season the first season the second season of of these stories and the ramp fiction so the idea is that it would be obviously a lot easier to produce but you are producing something like a tv series or it would be a ramp fiction series um so i thought i've also thought this was a great idea and it just never never happened now I, by the way i'm not saying i think it should happen i just i just wanted to reflect on this idea that's just sort of floating around out there and uh you know what happened with it why it never took off because i think it's kind of a good idea i mean you might say well people just telling their ideas would suck it wouldn't but the thing is i just i can just tell i can imagine i really feel like it would be um it would it would work i think it would be great and i think it would be an awesome like new art form like you could create your own series but just just you telling them off the top of your head without referring to a piece of paper and almost in a sense just sort of right grabbing the like i've always talked about when you're creating something the initial idea is the most pleasurable and the most fun and the initial inspiration but then the work of making it into something is what really bogs you down and eventually prevents you from doing it right so the idea of ram fiction you're going is the, the idea of capturing these ideas in a much more much more direct like much closer to the origin point where where do any of these ideas come from right like where are the words i'm saying coming from right now i'm talking and thinking i don't know it just it comes from inside you for lack of a better term um i don't know i think it would be a good idea but i'm not necessarily saying it should be done or i'm not necessarily saying i should do it <laughs> i don't know but and maybe someone else is doing this i don't know i i really haven't looked looked uh, you know i haven't really looked into it that much it just sort of came to mind today another um another inspiration i had f- that inspired the idea was uh there was a podcast, you know what, and I think I did include an episode on uh, the other side at one point, called Delta Park Project, and apparently, as far a couple of years ago, I saw they're still going. It's this married couple, but the first, like, fi- like the first few episodes, like the first ten episodes, was this, like, other guy that disappeared, apparently, <laughs> and he did a, a feature called Ghost Truck. I guess he carried a little tape recorder around with him and to, jo- to say his ideas. And he was kind of doing it. It was almost like Ram Fiction, his his ghost truck idea. You know, like a, a, a ghost truck that's in the highways of America. and You know. Anyway, yes, that was a point of uh, inspiration as well. But I just want to talk about the terminology too, Ramp Fiction. I mean, it, it's fiction and it's done as a, as a ramp. Obviously, Ramp Fiction also resonates with Pulp Fiction, the movie, and then also the, the the larger idea of Pulp Fiction, Ramp Fiction. Um, so it, it definitely comes from the Rampler, right? My my show from uh, 2008 and 2009, and I also was known as the Rampler. That was a very strange time in my life, you know. That that's something I, I often reflect on. What the heck happened back then? But it's good that it happened because it led to the stable form of the Ansog as it is today. You know, relatively stable. <laughs> All right. Um, but anyway, so the term ramp, ramp, rampler, R-A-M-P-L-E-R, is, is, is a legitimate word. It's a variant of, of rambler, right? So the idea of uh, rambling 
just sort of talking about all sorts of different things in an unfocused way very much is uh, you know descriptive of my show in a way it, it's I do ramble from topic to topic but I'm also rambling in the physical sense walking around and often doing both at once and so the when I was doing the rampler that was the first time I was really just recording while walking around Pre- previously I had done the show in the studio so the rampler was me kind of taking the show on the road with a, a digital recorder and uh, you know it, it turned out to be a much better way for me to to do the show rather than worry about it in a studio and the equipment isn't that you know anyway um so rampler with a p wasn't really used that much so i called it the rampler and uh you know that that whole thing happened back then 2008 2009 it's a wild time you know but uh so that's eventually where and obviously we have a show now called the exit ramp which is definitely also based on um the Rampler, especially how I exited the, my Rampler on FMU. It's a whole other story. <clears throat> By the way, there is going to be an exit ramp this weekend. If anyone, you know, I'm on on Facebook, I, I made a notice of it. Because last time I messed up and some people didn't get invited. and So I, I made sure to cross-reference the list and everything. And I made a post on, on the Discord group and a post on Facebook. You know, if you need an invite. And if you need an invite, let me know. We all get together on a Zoom call, then the audio is, re- is released as the show. Anyway. Um, and then I also started using occasionally the term ramp as a, you know, as a, uh, a term for an instance of this type of recording. You know, well, I forget some of the ones I use, like, uh, did I do like trees ramp or I was rampling with trees? I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, something ramp would just be sort of an instance of, Rampling, right? A session of rampling was a ramp, right? Hmm, who's this parking in front of my house? I don't know. So, in that, so that's where the, the term ramp fiction came from. And obviously, pulp fiction is a t- is a touch point. Is that a, re- a reference point to that? Just to f- the way the phrase is formed and the re- it resonates with that phrase. Anyway, so. That was the idea. So I guess it all kind of comes down to, right, and I've really, I've, I've tried to figure this out, delved into this, you know, the sort, sort of the nature of fiction where re- really fiction is one of the superpowers of the human being that we can uh, create whole other worlds and other people and other characters and make things happen just in our mind and just by saying it or writing it down, right? It's really quite an amazing power we have, the power of fiction, of stories, right? And, uh, you know, I, I know it, it's, and I've felt this way, it seems easy to, to write stories and stuff, right? But if you ever tried to do it, you know, it's actually really hard. <laughs> it's really hard. And, uh, and I think all too often it, it falls into just incredibly everything is very derivative and you're just retelling stories that you've heard and right is there any originality in it that's one side of it right the whole idea that you know when you write stories you sort of fall back on these tropes and these uh archetypes and things just you're just sort of retelling the stories that you're telling now my big experience with fiction was mainly with my what i call my failed science fiction novel severe repair and uh, when i was younger 
I just I would just write. I would just fearlessly just write, and it, a lot of it was not great, and some of it was okay. Uh, but I was just f- kind of fearlessly going forward, and I do think it's because I I was in touch with the thing I talked about in last episode, which is that um, when you're a certain age, right, mostly from you know you're a teenager, a late teenager, and then in, into your early twenties, you're in touch with this. You can tap into a, a, a creative force. You know, they they call it the muse. You're you're inspired. And you can just go, and you can just write. And I, 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 another thing I did was my my comic strips. My character is Zope, and again, I was able just even not having any art ability, I was able to create all these comic strips with these stories and everything, just fearlessly doing it. Right now, as I as I said last time, the the tragedy of this is that uh, you know you're. 18 years old, 19, 20, 21, 22, 23, 24, whatever, right? You haven't had a lot of life experiences. You don't have a lot to say, and yet that's the time you're able to create. So you're sort of, every little bit of life experience you're having around that time to sort of, uh, you know, empower your, to power your stories and your ideas will never be anywhere near as rich as someone that's a bit older, but you, but it's like this unfortunate situation. And I, what I'm talking, I know it's not. I don't think it's been formalized, but I have to think that people have noticed this. All those musicians that wrote that incredible music when they were younger, and try as they might, they can never equal it. And and they're a little bit older. It's a wild situation, right? For that art form, right? For that art form, for what the art form I'm using right now, which is whatever you want to say, rambling monologues, whatever you want to call what I'm doing now, and I am a bit older now. Yes, I'm 55. Yes, and uh, this form, I don't feel like I'm suffering at all from being older. I think it's actually, I I feel like I'm getting better and better at this as time goes on. So I feel like this, what I'm doing right now, is. A, a different type of art form that doesn't require the same kind of creative energy that writing music and lyrics or writing stories or drawing comics like those have a different requirement right it's almost like i call it like a you know like being able to create other worlds stuff it's like a human superpower but um you're empowered so much more when you're younger for that stuff um, and I know there's certain kinds of, you know, like uh, you could say like the film composers like John Williams or whoever. Uh, what's, what's that guy? Uh, the other guy. Um, uh, Henry Mancini. Yeah, like someone like that. Those kind of composers that are that have that kind of formal com- compositional style. They also seem to be, you know, consistently good past that time. So. This is kind of, and I know I know that authors do continue to be able to write relatively well when it's more of a um, structured craft that they're doing. So I know this is not universal. It's just, um, it's, 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 a, it, it's, it's a something that's fascinating, and I don't know how many other people have investigated this, but it does seem that. 
different sorts of creative arts require different sorts of energies, right? And uh, and as I said, what I'm doing right now, I don't. I feel like its energy cost is different than fiction, especially writing fiction and writing stories. Um, not to say it just takes up less energy. It's just maybe a different quality of energy. Uh, or maybe maybe this whole f- theory is flawed. I'm trying to theorize here. I may be wrong. This is just observations I've had. So I find that, um, right, the there's a couple of ways of looking at this. I, I, I either that writing fiction, even in the form of ramp ramp fiction, would be just too costly energy-wise. That is, I just wouldn't have enough energy to do it or it would be a waste of energy to just put all of my creative um, units, creative energy units, into something like that. Or maybe, because as I'm saying, it's something that should be easier and less intense, maybe if I really tried to do it, I I could do it. And And it could just be because no one's really done it as far as I can tell. Maybe someone has. I don't know. It's, it seems like something someone would come up with. Um, the idea of you know morphic resonance, as more people do it in the world, it will be easier for everyone in the world to do it. I don't know. I don't know exactly why. But then it gets to when I look at like what I wrote in my failed novel, it sort of feels like fiction has kind of a I don't know if you want to say like a dark side right I mean I think I think we can all agree that um, storytelling right eh, fictional storytelling is something that I would think um, is a wonderful aspect of the human experience right but that it could be used for nefarious purposes and you think about the stories that are most popular. They're brought to you by entertainment corporations, be they TV networks, radio networks, book publishers, big media conglomerates, etc., that are all very connected to the banks, right? So the powers that be, uh, and whatever that may entail, some sort of shadow government, Illuminati-type organization, or whatever, that they could be using fiction to for means of control and means of um, influencing the way people think and the way people view the world that there may be an ulterior motive for fiction right <coughs> and because uh, you can see there's so many of the same weird tropes and ideas in all this fiction the idea being that and it does come back to morphic resonance, which I do think about a lot. The idea that, um, right, our understanding of the world and our processing of the world around us, we're plugged into a system that involves everyone else around us. So the more people are familiar with a certain idea, right, it'll just become more f- familiar to you, right? That the idea of learning is more resonating with other people that already know about something. It's a, very, it's a, it's a big topic. Um, 
I would say specifically, I really feel like the Beatles. I'm a huge Beatles fan, but I found that around 1990, I started my big personal Beatlemania, and um, I I found the everything about the Beatles so meaningful and important. But if you really step back and look at it, like they're great songs, but there's some extra thing where. Right, it's like you're plugged into something where this music, and not just the music, but the stories, the personalities of the members of the band, and everything else, just seem much more um, p- full of meaning than they really should. And it's because I think it's because what do they say? Nothing succeeds like success. There's so many people were thinking about the Beatles and hearing their music. That's why the music sounds so good. Perhaps that. Not just that it, they're well-formed songs, but that so many people have heard the songs, it has a huge impact in the morphic field, right? And so the pleasure you experience listening to those songs is based on this the huge pattern that has been carved out of the morphic field with those songs, right? So I noticed this. So I think that in that sense, any music or stories or ideas that are disseminated to a mass amount of people through mass media right will will resonate and affect how people view things and understand things and it can go far beyond the specific content of a song or a TV show or a movie right there can be subtle ideas implications and, um, <coughs> you know, like I, I talk a lot about uh, dialectics in terms of, um, as I understand it, a uh, use of dialectics is to, um, and this is a slightly different topic, but I think this is one of the major ways they reinforce certain ideas is that you would, as we talk about a lot in, in many different I- fields of thought, politics, a philosophy, etc., right? In any for any given subject, there could be hundreds, if not thousands of different positions or ideas. But that dialectics just basically simplifies it down to two, two ideas that are in conflict with each with, with each other. Okay? And um my thought about it is you present a fight a conflict, a struggle between idea A and idea B. And then that is sort of presented as the complete spectrum of thought on that topic, right? And whereas the ultimate goal is to uh, reinforce a hidden a hidden agenda, a hidden thing between that dialectic. And one I use, I don't know if it's the best example, but the idea that, um, you know, like taxation, right? So the idea is that the, the liberals are like, we need higher taxes on the corporations. We need higher taxes on people that are rich, uh, you know, just help pay for social services. And the conservatives are like, no, we believe in trickle-down economics. We think we should lower taxes on the corporations so they can make more jobs and make, you know, and, and employ more people. And the rich people should pay less taxes so they can buy more yachts and buy more mansions. And then people will have jobs maintaining those yachts and mansions and building those yachts and mansions, right? You know that old that old thing. And meanwhile, what's sort of lost in the, in the whole spectrum is like, wait, both of those ideas are reinforcing the idea that there should be taxes and taxes are normal, right? 
So that is so to me in that case that would be the third thing. Of course taxes should exist, but should there be more of them or less than them? Well no, there's another point of view that maybe there shouldn't be taxes, you know. That's one example of how a struggle, a conflict can appear to be these two groups are at odds, but they're agreeing on one secret thing that then you by observing or engaging in that struggle or just, you know, when you watch a fight, it's very engaging. It's just a human thing. It's very when you see any fight, any people fighting, it's very engaging and entertaining. And you just plug into it and you wind up rooting for one <coughs> one side or the other. And right. And so whatever side you wind up on, you're going to be reinforced on the third thing, the secret thing. And what I'm the tax example is not the best example, but again, there's it's happening at so many levels. So the idea is that you can use dialectics and other methods to and I know dialectics could be that's just my understanding of the term. That's it's one use of the idea of dialectic. It's not like Dianetics <laughs> or diuretics. <laughs> that's from Repo Man. Anyway, um so anyway, the idea that fiction has become corrupt and is being used as a means to direct the consciousness of the public through mass media outlets and that is growing up in this world of fiction that's all been mostly concocted by these shadowy nefarious groups for this ulterior motive that then (coughs) your fiction will naturally pick up on those themes because it's just all you know so in a way and I've thought about this a lot you know is, is, is a lot of people have the urge to write fiction they're channeled towards a direction that might be o- overly influenced by um, the perhaps corrupted content of, of mass market fiction, right? I know that's kind of a stretch, but that's just something I've thought about. So maybe it's, it's better just to avoid fiction? I don't know. Um, because when you really get down to it, and I also personally have you know, a personal um, ethos, is what you call it? Is it an ethos? I don't know. That if I was to really engage in fiction again, to any great degree, I would really want to eliminate violence from from my fiction. Though my severe repair was quite violent. Um, You know, I was delighting in violence, just like so many people do. But when I get a little older, I realize it's kind of negative. Gives violence is like a negative vibe, man. I would want to kind of like avoid violence and you know, avoid certain things. And <coughs> but all of these, you know, that would make it even harder to write. Maybe it's easier to write when you're just picking up on the tropes of what's around you. I don't know. See, it all comes down to all this second guessing and being overly self-aware. I guess you know. When I was younger, I was just sort of writing stuff, writing stories. I didn't, I didn't think about all this other stuff. But it was very much influenced by the fiction I had myself consumed. So in terms of ramp fiction, and again, kind of why I'm not pushing, I don't really want to do it. I just wanted to talk about it. You know, what would it be about? You know, uh, would it sort of fall on the same old tired tropes? I do recall... Uh, a couple of years ago, I was at the New York Comic Con, and there's this one guy, Mark, I used to work with, who 
always had a booth there for his his comic book uh, company. It was an independent alley, I think it was called. And um, I walked all around independent alley, all these independent comic book producers. And it seemed like almost every single booth, there were like dozens, if not hundreds of these booths, everything that they were producing just seemed like a rehash of something that had been produced by mass media companies. You know, the same old stories, the same old tropes, the same old whatever. It didn't seem like there was anything really original going on. So, so at that, and so again, thinking about how hard it would be to come up with something original, and so what ramp fiction just, what would the point of it be? Would it just be sort of a rehash of things we've already seen? It would just sort of seem, at, at, to, if, if it wasn't innovative, if, if it wasn't something new, I'm just talking about the form, not the content, right? The content might just naturally tend to be kind of crummy, you know? And uh, so I think that that may be another reason why I shied away from it because I, I don't know. I have, I, I have to spend my time and energy doing this show and running the channel as opposed to coming up with some sort of innovative fiction. Could I even do it? I don't know. But anyway, yeah, it's something I, I think about ramp fiction from time to time. And uh, it's uh, so I'm not going to pursue it. I'll keep doing frivols, but, you know, and I did, if you, I did some stuff on, uh, related stuff on the other side, like little stories about this character, Magic Smup, really never amounted to anything, I just did a few here and there, I think I played one of them recently, that was actually pretty good, that, that, uh, Nine Pebble Detector Go, or something it was called, and I had the computer voice read it, but again, it was really... Yeah, it was just it, it, it was really just uh, it was a, almost a frivol unto itself you know just it, it combined a bunch of different ideas fuzzy Doppner songs and different ideas and the the uh, Mannheim steamroller cinnamon hot chocolate mug which I do have one now I finally bought one and I use it all the time I love it anyway yes so I don't think I'm going to do it, but I just thought it was a cool idea. Who knows? Maybe it could become something. But I, th- I think the issue of the content itself is just is is tough, and you know, that's why I think most people that do something like this, they they wind up doing parodies of something, right? Because the point of it is you're kind of just criticizing and picking apart something that already exists. I I wouldn't be particularly interested in just doing parodies, you know. But yeah, the challenge of doing something original is <laughs> a daunting challenge. And this was meant to this is meant to be something fun and light and easy and quick. So, yeah. Let's 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 not worry about it. <laughs> See, the more I think about it, the more I realize why uh Ram fiction never happened. Ah, good morning. It's the next day now. Yeah, I've been. It was just a weird day yesterday, just a very weird energy. But I think I know the explanation for it. There's an idea that I was trying to that was trying to come out, and it caused a bit of chaos. But we'll get to that. Anyway, I wanted to update you on my uh, my shaving situation. So, uh, what was it last week? I was waiting for the shaving cream to come, the Nivea shaving cream, because I had not shaved in a while, and uh, it came a little bit after that episode uh, finished. <clears throat> 
and I did shave, being very careful to leave space for my sideburns because, you know, I, I remembered I had sideburns in the past, and uh, I do remember a hairstylist saying that you really should have sideburns, and then at some point I cut them all off. I don't know what happened. Maybe I was in a rush one morning, and just, it's very, very you know, very easy when your face is covered with shaving cream to just go all the way up. you got to be careful, you know, so... Now my sideburns can be. Whoa! I was gonna. Sorry. I was going to let you hear my sideburns here, but of course I got some feedback. Yeah, it's about a two-week growth now of my sideburns, and uh, so that's basically as long as. All right, that's as long as my uh, my beard would have been if it kept growing. It's kind of the same hairs. Um, so yeah, the sideburns like halfway down the ear, I guess, is the concept. Um, anyway, they're growing. They're growing well. Um, but a uh, listener, Anne, reminded me, you know, about, um, you know, that I've been so vigilant about my toiletries being vegan, right, and cruelty-free, that somehow I have this blind spot uh, for shaving cream. I guess because I just was sort of desperate for shaving cream, I just ordered anything. And I don't know, is there good shaving cream that's, like, vegan? I'm, th- I'm thinking, like, the kind of shaving cream that's just in a can and you shoot out, and you shoot it out into your hand and schmear it on like is there vegan versions of that that's not cruel uh, so apparently uh, the the two brands i was talking about clinique and nivea you know do a lot of animal testing and very bad companies so i will and i will try to um you know i'll, I'll do some research into shaving cream that is uh, cruelty free <laughs> that's like the last toiletry i need to address uh before i guess i could go all electric <laughs> but uh you know i i, I prefer just shaving with a razor. But, you know, it's it's funny. Like, I don't know why those replaceable shaver cartridges, which obviously are super expensive, you know, that's how they get you. You buy the razor. It's real cheap. And then the cartridges are really expensive. I, I use whatever, the Triple Play, Triple Max, whatever whatever it's called. You know, it has three blades on it. And they're, they're usually only, like, really good and really sharp for, like, a couple shaves, you know. I was thinking that's when you know you're really rich if you can buy those, which are cost a couple... I think they cost a couple bucks each for the little cartridges. If you were really rich, you could just use them once and throw them away, you know. It'd be very expensive, but if you're really rich, you could do that. I wonder. I do wonder how the ultra-rich shave. Well, they probably, they probably have, like, this... <laughs> like, in their house, they have this weird recreation of, like, like, like a, a town from the 1890s, and, and right... It would be like a, 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 a barber shop that they built into their house. And then there's like a street outside, but it's kind of just a backdrop. And there's like artificial sunlight streaming in, right? You get those lamps that produce the same wavelength as the sun. And, and you would kind of walk in from the back and you'd have a, like a, a, you'd hire someone to be your barber to, sh- like to pretend it was 1895 and getting sh- the, 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 the hot shave and a haircut. And it would only cost two bits. You'd give the guy like a like a twenty five cents from like an eighteen ninety five. It'd be this whole weird role playing things, but that's how you'd shave if you're like a billionaire. And obviously, the guy would be paid well. The, the the barber is someone, and they have to be in character the whole time. That's how a billionaire would shave. I'm thinking like, listen, if you're just a, a low level millionaire, maybe you can afford the, the 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 triple edge. Just throw them away after every use. But I think that the fake uh, eighteen ninety five. Uh, 
shaving experience, if you're a billionaire, that would be rather pricey. I mean, just to build it alone would probably cost $500,000 to a million dollars. To build that, it's a custom build. It would have to be super accurate. And then to hire, you have to hire someone to be on salary, you know. Imagine their whole job is just shaving you every morning, and then they could just hang out. They, it's like, like they could just make a living on this. Creepy stuff, man. Billionaires are creepy. Very creepy. Yes, indeed. But, um, yeah, so the idea that was trying to come out as it's sort of... I feel like I did finally get to the right idea, which is uh, listening tokens. This was tough. It, it, it was like a birthing struggle all yesterday. Uh, it was wild. And I woke up this morning at like 5 a.m. I couldn't get back to sleep, and I was still struggling with this idea. Um, you know, it sort of relates to what I was talking about earlier, how, you know, different things... Like, creating stuff is not easy. It's, it, 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 this one was a tough one to, to get out. And I've been working on this for a few weeks now. Um, finally, I think I got it, but I'll tell you about listening tokens. So, right, you know, we have this, our archive here where there's 13,000 hours, over 10,000 episodes. So <coughs> I've really been struggling to um, make it into a, a system where, right, well, for, let me just take a step back. So the book that I produced last year lists every single show. So essentially, it's broken up by show. So the Overnight Skip has its own sec- section. Overnight Skip Central has its own section, right? Radio Free Shambles has its own section, etc., right? And they're just listed chronologically. Now, elsewhere in the book, there is what I call the Grand Chronology, which does list every single episode by the order it was released. But the main book has by show and then chronologically. But there were these, these long lists that were kind of unbroken and really kind of tough to look at or think about. So the work I've been doing on, uh, you know, the next edition of the book is coming out next year, 2023. Um, I I started to think about, I did, uh, and if you can actually see this now, this is out. I actually released the first version of this, the uh, November 2022, a monthly update for the Ansug book. And so um, I, I started breaking up the lists naturally by month or by season, right? So some shows, like Central, where there's, you know, there's a, there's like four per month, so like 12 per season, you know, winter, spring, summer, fall. Um, and with my show here, The Overnightscape, I usually do eight, sometimes nine a month, so that's, it's good to do by month. So I'm so breaking up into, into those shorter playlists, which now start to feel like more approachable, right? The size of them, and you could choose one and listen to it. But I wanted to add a bit more context, right? Another one of these ideas, similar to Ramp Fiction, uh, super listening, a.k.a. Patchby or Fooning. The idea of, of uh, you know, I, I've always noticed that if you listen to something while doing something else, it forms this stronger experience. Like, I do remember, I think it was back when Shambles first sent me some stuff to listen to. He was asking to come on the channel, and I was playing um, a skateboarding video game on, I think, PS3. And uh, I just remember that experience. I was just skateboarding at random around this suburban neighborhood and listening to Shambles' uh, show. And uh, interestingly, he was talking about a lot of ideas he had had for various stories, I think, on that. I don't, I, I'm not sure which one that was. But anyway, 
that idea of, of doing something while you're listening, but in a, a more deliberate fashion, right? Delib like that was just sort of accidental, but the idea that you could deliberately do that. And uh, I'm currently just calling it super listening, right? We called it fooning, and again, Patchby was a name that I came up with. I don't think that is going to catch on. Um, it's a tough one to uh, set up. I still, I still like the idea, but I, I don't know. It's a bit much to kind of try to implement it, right? But I wanted to bring something like that to the playlist. Some, a little extra something for each of these playlists to encourage listening and to contextualize them somewhat. So when you think about the idea of all the possible things you could do while you're listening to a show, play a video game, walk around the town, whatever, stare, stare at the wall, you know, all these, these different things that, that you could be doing, could I write down something like that for each playlist? And it seemed like overwhelming. There's hundreds of playlists. Um, kind of overwhelming to try to come up with something. So I started to think about the idea of some sort of just an idea, just a, a, a concept like a cat or a dog or a tree or something that could be just like a starting point for an idea. And um, But again, it sort of felt like very preliminary. Um, so I ran through a, tons of different permutations of this idea. And what I finally arrived at this morning uh, is listening tokens. So listening tokens are um, essentially a little icon, a little image with a, a name and then to the right of it, the name of it, um, which currently uh, are derived from the uh, Emoji 15 set, right? So I found out that just earlier this year, perhaps just a few months ago, Google released a new emoji font called uh, Noto Emoji which is all black and white, no colors involved. And it's brand new, it's really well done, right? And I hadn't been aware of it. Um, it's interesting to note also that the, the font I'm using for the book, Besley, was majorly updated at some point this year. I can't even find the exact date it was updated. Um, but the extra weights and the extra widths completely have influenced my typography. So I'm using these fonts that just came out this year, 2022. But anyway, so the listening token might be a, a taco or a comet or um, a panda bear, right? And you'd see the image from that font and then the name, and it's the listening token for each playlist is, is unique. And I do plan on just kind of completely randomizing it. There'll be no rhyme or reason to it. It just will be, I'm going to, I've actually started to just sort of plow through the set of emoji that seem appropriate and then I'm going to do some kind of randomization and throw them in there. Uh, but the idea is that a listening token in a very... As, I, I wanted to make it as simple an idea as possible. So the idea is that um, if you listen to all the shows that are in that list, and there's little checkboxes next to it in the book, so you can check them off if you have it in a paper form, that you then get that token, right? It's very simple. And, and you could sort of, since they're... Emoji, you could generate them in many different ways. So the idea is you could sort of start to collect these tokens um, by listening. And it's just another way of... It essentially is because I just needed one additional vector of contextualization for these playlists, right? And this seems a very simple solution 
though it was very hard to get to this simple solution, right? Um, so that it's, uh, you know, so if you want to get this particular token, if you want to get the um, dilapidated house token, which is one of them, uh, you would listen to all the shows in that playlist, and then you could add that to your collection of tokens. Now, this is something that could be done automatically in some kind of a program, but for now, it would just be manual. Um, or you could just write down the name of it somewhere. It, it, it's, it's just meant to be a very high-level thing, not something that's super uh, formalized. But then, if you want to do super listening, and, and you do get the, you know, one like, let's say, the lion uh, emoji, you could, uh, you know, you could, you could turn on... Um, a lion cam from a zoo and watch that while you're listening, right? You could do something else lion. You could get a little toy lion and put it in your pocket as you're walking around, right? So the uh, the, the token can um, inspire other other types of uh, super listening activities, but it doesn't have to, right? Or you, it may just be that you don't have to do anything, but you say, oh, this is cool. I would like to get this this uh, this token of a um, of a teapot, you know, so I'll listen to these. You know, and you don't have to do anything. You could just think about it. You know, so I, I. But this idea of listening tokens is an idea that I've really been struggling with. And finally, again, this morning, I, I think I sort of it finally arrived. Right. So that's the whole idea of listening tokens. And again, it's it's going to be in the book. Each playlist will have a listening token, which is has that graphic, and. Um, do with it as you will. Like that's the idea. Just I just needed one additional vector of um, <coughs> context, because otherwise, just staring at these lists feels very like it feels very confusing and disconnected, right? Anyway, it's a small thing, but it's a big thing as well. Listening tokens. Check them out. So I've been uh, continuing to uh, research Anthony Newley. The um, it was a major star back in. I really think his he was like the er, the late fifties, like fifty nine, sixty, sixty one. He was like a rock star, a pop star. He had a lot of songs on the charts. Then he, I think, the reason why he uh, is not so well known now is he kind of switched over to musical theater, right? Because he had been also a movie star. But switching over to musical theater, you're really cutting off your legacy and cutting off your audience in a lot of ways because. All those performances, they aren't recorded, they're not, they're just kind of, maybe there's a cast album that's released, but it's just whoever was in the audience saw it, and everyone else, well, in the future is out of luck, right? So anyway. And, and it's kind of funny because um, another musician who switched over to musical theater in what I feel is an extremely unfortunate set of circumstances was uh, Eric Wolfson from the Alan Parsons Project. Now, as you know, Alan Parsons Project is one of my favorite bands ever, and it really is, you know, the name of it is very deceiving because it's more about Eric Wolfson was the musical force behind that group, not Alan Parsons. And um, they had a falling out. It was one of those classic cases where they really balanced each other out. Alan Parsons was more of a producer, right? Um, And he basically sort of provided uh, direction and context for Eric Wolfson's very potent musical ability and kept him reined in and in check. So he was able to produce uh, pop, prog, rock music, um, but with some of that musical theater sensibility. But it just, it was such an interesting confluence 
all those Alan Parsons Project albums, they bear endless repeat listenings. And it was that Fordiana album the, that would have been the 11th that was caused them to finally split because Eric really was pushing for more musical theater type stuff in there and Alan Parsons wasn't having it. And, um, and I think that that, I mean, because Freudiana, where it's kind of hard to find, it's on YouTube, but I don't know if it's on streaming. What a fantastic album. Um, I wish they could have worked out their differences because they, if they, they could have had, because now at this point, Eric uh, Wolfson is dead, but they could have produced a number more great Alan Parsons Project albums. But uh, Eric's desire for musical theater was so great that he moved into musical theater, and I think the work he produced was really kind of, I've tried listening to it and tried to understand it and really not very notable compared to his Alan Parsons Project work. So it was really kind of sad. Uh, anyway, Anthony Newley is sort of endlessly fascinating. And this clip is about David Bowie and how um, Anthony Newley was a huge influence on David Bowie. So here's a clip from a YouTube video called David Bowie talks about the artist that influenced him, part one of two, radio broadcast February 4th, 2013. So check this out. <coughs> that is Love Me Till Tuesday, a Bowie track from 1967 from what fans call his Anthony Newley phase. Anthony Newley was a talented and successful actor, composer, singer and songwriter in the 50s and 60s with a theatrical cockney chappy singing style which Bowie totally adopted. Newley also starred in a surreal cult sitcom called Gurney Slade, which appealed to Bowie's surreal sense of humour. Here's a clip. A half-hour television show. Half an hour to put the world right. Act four, scene two, omelette the prince. It was the television series that made me want to sing like him, not the records. It was very odd. In fact, The Strange World of Gurney Slade was the reason that I liked Tony Newley. It wasn't the other stuff, it wasn't the singles and all that. And that series really drew me to what he was trying to do, because I think he was a very talented guy. And you can hear so much of where Bowie's voice styling came from at this time. This newly track could be Bowie. I'd like to fly away with not all Bowie's early heroes were musical. In 1967, he started studying and performing with the mime artist Lindsay Kemp. Lindsay taught Bowie about physical poise and stagecraft. A mime. <laughs> That's interesting. I never heard of this mime guy, but it does remind me, like, they're talking about how he really, you know, adopted also the physical, like the dance and the, the mime aspect. And it really reminds me of um, how Kate Bush also did this, that she had a dance teacher that strongly influenced her performance in the same way. After Bowie became, and still is, hugely aware of expressing himself physically during performances. Lindsay Kemp. One day I popped into my agent's office. The typist secretaries very excitedly said, Oh God, tell him, tell him, tell him about David Bowie. So I took home to my flat in Soho the album David Bowie. Loved it. Loved all the songs. Loved the, uh, the, the musical quality of, of, of many of the songs. Loved its naivety. Loved the voice which reminded me of two of my um, heroes. One being Jacques Brel and the other being Anthony Newley, you know, of course. Yeah, I noticed that in Britain they pronounce it Anthony. Anthony Newley. 
I guess that's the British way of pronouncing it. Anthony is Antony, yeah. That night I fell in love, didn't I? When I live my dreams. So yeah, that's that's I think that's most of what they talked about Anthony Neely. But it's kinda interesting, just I knew nothing about this guy up up until a month or two ago and been doing all this research. Very much inspired just by an offhanded comment my mother made at some point at how she loved Anthony Newley. I can't even remember where this comment came from or what anything about it, but apparently she was a, a big fan. And of course, you know, David Bowie, very influenced by him, and David Bowie remains a massive star, even though he died a few years ago. And Newley is, is unknown. I thought that was really interesting, though, that his whole singing style is based on Anthony Newley's kind of bizarre singing style, right? Yeah. But I do have that conversation with my sister-in-law, Johanna, who works in the theater, about its ephemerality, which she, and I think many people in the theater, would count as one of theater's great um, benefits, is that it's only the people in that room on that night experience that show. And um, other than that, it just exists in people's memories and is not recorded. Um, as she told me, as she does work in the industry, she works on Broadway, that uh, a show that achieves a certain level of success, there's a, a team that goes in and uh, videos the entire show, takes a video of the entire show, but it is kept in a strictly sealed uh, library and only industry professionals are allowed to go in and um, watch those pr- those productions for um, you know for reference purposes. It's not meant for the public. I don't know if they're ever going to like. Can they release it in like a hundred years? I don't know. Like, um, but I just find it kind of. I understand theater before the ability to record things was the only game in town. If you wanted to have a show. It had to be in person, right? The people playing the instruments and singing had to be in person. There was nothing pre-recorded, and it could only be described, perhaps, in what were the um, right the the forms of preservation, text, basically, uh, whatever is written on paper, books, are the things that could be preserved, images, paintings, uh, into the future. But theater could not be preserved. Um, when it gets to the point that now that we can, you know, obviously if you were to film it with a video camera, right, you're not able to reproduce the experience of being there in the room with um, the uh, the actors on the stage, but you're able to get a pretty good approximation of it. Um, but there's still this persistent sense that it shouldn't be recorded and that it should be meant for only the people in that theater. Which I think, to me, feels like you're working so hard to create this production, and yet, and I think this actually has to do with union rules, contractual rules, parameters set by the the industry and the owners of the theaters that it's not allowed to be taped. So that now that we're in an age where you could very easily preserve these things, and get it to a wider audience than who's able to be in that theater on that one day. There's this great resistance in, in, the, in all of the theater world that it should not be recorded, that it should be just a, an ephemeral experience. And I can understand that. I can understand the, the sentiment behind it, but it's just sort of horrifying to me as my uh, 
philosophy is very much toward this idea that we can create something now and it can now be preserved for all of the future. And it's, a, it's something I, that I talk about a lot. It's one of the focuses of this, this, this network here, the Overnight Escape Underground, the ONSUG, is to be preserved for future generations. And that's right, very feasible and that's part of the motivation for doing it is that it can be preserved. Um, so this this whole art form that is designed to not be preserved is is very to me. I just find it I just find it painful to think about that all the time and energy that goes into it, and then in, in the end, it's gone and it's in people's memories. And when those people pass away, then it won't be in anyone's memory, and all that will be left are reviews and descriptions of it, perhaps. Um, and that library of certainly not every theater piece is preserved in that way, but Broadway shows that reach a certain level of uh, success are, are recorded by this organization. And uh, again, it's not for public view, but why not? It's all these rules and all these regulations. You know, I love how, you know, people really do. People need to really step back and take a look at the world, because as far as we know, oh, it's a, it's a, it's a, it's a rule of the organization. Well, you know, the organization is made up of people. Just like you and me, the people act like like the organization, the corporation, this and that. It's it's this ruling authority. Yeah, but it's made up of people, right? Like it's all it's all imaginary. It's all made up. The gravitas of it is is hype. You know. Now I know that the whole morphic resonance thing could play in here, but it, it, let's not worry about that at the moment. It just sort of feels like, and I, as I've always talked about, theoretically speaking. Ooh, I need to get a cover for the pot here. I'm making some of this, uh, right, some right rice risotto. Um, that, uh, sorry, <laughs> the cat's knocked over a flower pot. Anyway, um, right, as far as we know, right, no one really lives past, I mean, at the extreme, 120 years. Most people don't last anywhere near that long. So 120 years ago was what? 1902. Right. So every single person on Earth that was alive in 1902 is now dead. Right. So we're all the new people. Right. And yet there's this incredible urge or um, what's, what's the right word for this, this, this aspect that people feel like they have to follow the rules that were set forth by the people who are now long dead. Right. Oh, my God, someone wrote this down 200 years ago. We have to follow that rule. But they're dead. They can't do anything to you. They're gone. You don't have to follow those rules if they're not working for you anymore. Right? So all of these rules and laws and traditions that were set forth and invented by people that are now long dead, why, the, why not any questioning about, well, you know, we need to, like, since those people are gone, why don't we try and determine, are these still good rules? Are these still good traditions? Because we're the new people. We don't have to follow those rules. Those people aren't around anymore. Do you understand that? Now, of course, this is as far as we know. Of course, the other theory, another theory says that, would say, this is my own you know, interpretation of it, that what I'm describing as this seemingly irrational uh, feeling that we need to follow the rules of people that are long dead, right? 
I mean, before I get to that one, I could see, you could say that uh, you might say, if it ain't broke, don't fix it. Like, you know, um, it's been working. It's been kind of working and it's so hard to come up with new ideas. So let's just go with the, stay with the old ideas. That's kind of a simpler way of looking at it. But if there is some kind of, as I was talking about earlier, uh, 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 powers behind the scenes, Illuminati, secret societies that are controlling the world, um, those feelings that we have to continue to follow the rules set forth by people who are now dead are just an expression of those, those groups controlling us, right? Because they're, they're using those ideas to kind of perpetuate uh, imposing their will upon the group of people of the world. I'm not really phrasing this right. You know what I'm saying? But um, it, does, it just does seem a little bit... It does seem like... There's a, yeah, there's a tendency to um, stick with what has, has been going on, which, of course, again, morphic resonance would explain that because it just... Things that are keep repeating get stronger and stronger. And the more people that, rep- that are part of repeating that, it just gets stronger and stronger and stronger. So, yeah... Those traditions are just feel um, intuitive because uh, if if morphic resonance is real, it's because of morphic resonance. It's because so many people have followed those rules, have followed those traditions in the past, and you're connected to them in the morphic field in some way. That's why it, it seems so important to continue to follow the same rules over and over and over again. Um, but we don't know that there's an Illuminati, and science has generally, thus far, rejected morphic resonance as a, as a concept. So we're we're faced with a world that, uh, as far as the consensus goes, we're not beholden to these things. Yet why are we? We're not right. There's no proof there's an Illuminati or a a morphic field or anything else. So why are we so attached to these old rules? I don't know. I think I think what I said earlier might be true. Like most people don't feel that they that they would be at all up to the task of coming up with new rules, you know. Or anyone that's doing kind of okay, like doing well under the current set of rules, wherever they came from, they it would be in their interest if they're doing well and they're able to hire their their barbers in that weird billionaire barber shop. Why would they want to? And they're the ones that are powerful, the ones that are doing well. Why would they want to change things? Because under the current set of circumstances, they're doing great. Even if everyone else, even if other people are doing shitty, they're doing great. That actually, you know what? That's actually, see, listen, I'm using Occam's razor here, okay? I, I, do, I do believe it's, that it, it's not an ultimately a universal tool, but the idea that the simplest explanation is often the correct one. It's often it's always good to sort of look at the simplest explanation. So the adherence to tradition and the way we do things, those that are currently lording it over everyone else, the rich and elite, which we know certainly do exist in this world, this particular set of rules and traditions is working for them, and they're the ones in at the greatest levels of power, so they have no interest in changing things. If they right, they, they they just want to continue to uh, ride the gravy train, so they're the ones that could change it. But why would they want to? See, 
See, we, I came up with a kind of a more simpler answer. They call it riding the gravy train. Yes. Anyway, another video with Anthony Newley I found really interesting is, is the Burt Bacharach TV special. He's another guy that kind of, whatever happened to him? Is he still alive, Burt Bacharach? It almost sounds like, what is that game, Bacharach? He's Bacharach. <laughs> okay. Let's see, Burt Bacharach. He's alive. Oh, my God. He's 94. He's still alive. Wow. Amazing. Uh, he, he's a, he's a uh, you know, composer. Yeah. Songwriter, record producer, pianist. Um, wow, he's still alive. Anyway, he had uh, a TV special back in 1972 with Anthony Newley and Sammy Davis Jr., and uh, Newley had a, an especially strong friendship and um, did a lot of performances with Sammy Davis Jr., who was in that Rat Pack with uh, Frank Sinatra and Dean Martin and all them. Uh, but it's interesting because Sammy talking about Anthony Newley and then Anthony Newley talking about Sammy Davis, and they're, they're, they're employing this kind of uh, humor where they're sort of putting the person down as a, as a form of humor. What would you even call that? What do you call that that type of humor? Where, like, you you see it with a lot of people. Like, they have to sort of show affection by sort of, on the surface, like, criticizing or trashing the person. Like, being sarcastic. There's got to be a certain name for that. So this story that, that Sammy Davis Jr. is telling is sort of part of that humor, right? The world needs now is love, sweet love. Look at Bert Bacharach. <laughs> no, not just for some, but for everyone. Yeah, that should have been my song, Bert. That should have been, because I've been going around for years going peace and love and togetherness and right on. And, well, it's not too late. Maybe I'll record it and you'll have a hit. Oh, it's not too late. Do it. <laughs> Yeah, you're amazing, Sammy. You really are. Because you sing, you dance. Yeah. Do impressions. Play. Sammy Davis died in 1990. Drums, musical instruments. Want to know? Ooh, hold on. My, uh, my risotto is done. Hold on. I think I'll let it sit for a few more minutes because I, you know, I do two packs at once. So you have double, double. That's twice as much risotto. So I, you make it once and you have twice as much. Right? Just double, double the uh, the dosage. Well, it wouldn't be. It's not a medicine. It's risotto. Risotto is a medicine for the soul. It's a warm, rich, comfort food. But let's get back to Sammy Davis Jr. and Burt Bacharach and see what they're saying about Anthony Newley. I find this stuff very fascinating. So is there anything that you can't do? Yeah, I can't reach the pedals. <laughs> you know. Also. Also, part of this humor is the running joke. <clears throat> so Sammy is short. So <clears throat> whereas in today's hypersensitive youth, you're not allowed to make fun of people for anything physical. But back then, like, so, the, so it's just as part of their banter. Everyone 
Sammy himself, oh, you know, I can't reach the pedals, babe, I'm short. You know, that's sort of like the running joke. You know, I, I really do hope that there's some scholars or professionals investigating all these different modes of, of banter and humor and how they change over the years. It's fascinating. Something I, I know this sounds corny, and everybody says it when they're on someone special, but I've always wanted to work with you, man. And then also self-reference, self-reference, uh, meta levels. You know, he's, he's on a TV special, and he's referring to being on a TV special. That's, an, that's another one of these banter a- aspects. We've been friends for a good many years, you and your wife, my wife. Aspects of banter. There you go. I'll write that down in the show notes. But uh, Vicky feels the same way. It's kind of groovy to walk in and everybody's so excited about it. But I got to tell you something. Tony, Anthony Newley, man, he is so bashful about performing. He can't get over his shyness. Tony shy? See, this is where it's like the, the opposite of what's true. It's just sort of a, a type of humor. <laughs> Which I think was I think it was more understandable back in 72 than it would be now, you know. I find it incredible. You know why you find it incredible? Because his confidence overshadows his shyness. If it wasn't for his great ego, he'd be the humblest guy in the world. <laughs> I really know that you're a great Tony Newley admirer, you know? Yes, I have been for years. Yeah. And when did you first meet him? Do you remember that? I remember exactly. It was May 1960 in London, at a club called the Pedal. Tony was, well... He was sort of a well-meaning young British actor who didn't mean too much then. So he was trying to break into movies. He was sort of an awkward David Niven, you might say. Anyway, it was opening night for me, and after the show, an English friend of mine by the name of Lionel Blair came backstage and said there was a young chap outside who wanted to meet me, and he would just, you know, it was all, you know. So he brought in Anthony Newley. Well, after a few minutes of hand-kissing and bowing and mucho heavy breathing, right, he got off his knees and he said to me, Mr. Davis, you were fantastic. You were absolutely super. It's been a fabulous evening for me, and I wonder if you would let me have some sort of a souvenir, because no one would believe I actually touched you and met you. He wanted your autograph. No, he wanted my hat. Your hat? <laughs> because, you know, in those days, I was very heavy into impressions. And I used to wear a little snap Sinatra type hat. I guess I'm lucky. I'm glad he didn't want one of my suits. <laughs> nobody, nobody could fit into your suit. Oh, that's me. A running so joke. Six four. So you gave him the hat. I gave him the hat. I guess I gave it to him to get him off my back and off my head. You did it work? I couldn't lose him, Bert. He followed me around London. Every time I turned around, there was Anthony Newley. There was Anthony Newley. Then he started writing songs, right? And he kept sending them to me, begging me to record them. Well, that was, as I said, 12 years ago. Incidentally, whatever happened to him? <laughs> Before anybody takes this serious, you know I'm kidding, because I, I think about him like I think about you. I think you're both geniuses, and you're one of kind. I mean that. Well, I know, Tony and you, that you've both been a great, great compliment to each other. No, one thing I'm not kidding about. But I want my hat back. <laughs> And just just to step back, just this was a TV special from Britain that was actually was also shown in the U.S. back then. Just the tone and the feeling of this show, so utterly different than than today, right? Listen, I tell you that Tony right now is doing a musical with Leslie Perkins. Yes, it's called The Good Old Bad Old Days, and they're in rehearsal. And I'm not sure, but I think that may have been the last one he did with Leslie Perkins, right? I'm not really sure when when that Perkins uh, thing. When that ended, but uh, the good old, bad old days. <coughs> and I've heard some of that score. And I'll tell you this. 
You may not get your hat back, but I think you're going to get some hit songs to record. I already have. <laughs> and this was actually after he made that, that disastrous movie, uh, Hieronymus Merkin. So he was still going after that. It was not, his career was not over. <coughs> but somehow during the 70s, and one thing I read is that Anthony Newley became a tax exile. This was a big thing in Britain because they, they raised their top tax rate, talking about taxes again, to like something like 90 or 95 percent for people that were earning a lot of money. As you could hear in the Beatles song, Taxman, with George Harrison, should 5% appear too small, be thankful I don't take it all, because I'm the taxman. Yes. So a lot of these rock stars, these musicians, they had to leave Britain because, right, they're making a lot of money. They're rich and famous, but they're, all their money is going away. They're, like 95% of the money is being taxed. So apparently that may be another thing about with Anthony Newley. He had to move to Florida to get away from these insane taxes. Very interesting stuff. <laughs> you know, it, really, it's a lot of work putting together a new musical. Oh, it certainly is. You've been through it and I've been through it, so we know. But for Tony, it's going to really be so much tougher. And beside writing it, starring in it, He's also directing it. That's something I don't understand. How can anyone do that? I mean, directing himself. Bert, listen to me good. It's easy when you're in love with the leading man. <laughs> and this is another thing where that movie and that joke, like just everyone sort of making fun of how Anthony Newley is essentially an egomaniac, a complete e- egomaniac and a completely, it's kind of a toxic personality in some ways, right? So here's the... Okay, kids, let's try it again, shall we? And this time, let's try and get it right. Anthony Newley. After all, it is the title song from the show, you know. Are you sure Noel Coward started like this? All right, so they're doing a number from that one. But then here is... Don't you realize we're living to die? And I have to say, like, I still really can't embrace the, uh, the Broadway style music. Like I find the I find the guy fascinating, but the music is still even this the form of the music. I I just I I just don't I guess I don't like that kind of music that much that kind of musical theater music. <coughs> so anyway, hold on, let me have some uh, risotto. Then I'll come back. I'll play you uh, now. Newly talking about Sammy Davis Jr. Mm-hmm. That was some good rice risotto. That was a uh, cracked pepper flavor. Let me just get back to the action here. See Bacharach sitting astride the chair, sitting backwards on the chair to be cool, and Newley sitting sideways on the chair. They're very hip in 72. <coughs> I guess we both appreciate, you know, the fact that every composer, songwriter, needs that special someone to interpret, uh, interpret their songs. You know? I mean, Berlin had a stare, Cole Porter had Merman, Harold Arlen had Garland. I've had Dionne Warwick, and uh, you've had Sammy Davis. That's true. I've had Sammy Davis up to here. <laughs> Actually, up to there. He's a little guy, as you know. Say, running joke. So he was telling me how the two of you first met. Oh, was he? Yeah, I imagine we did. Let's see, that was, I'd say, 10 or 12 years ago. I'm not sure. There was nothing auspicious about the occasion. 
I believe he was making his debut appearance in London at the time. That's right. He mm. told me about it. Mm. I, of course, had no great desire to see him perform. I mean, I was so busy at the time in movies. I know. He told me. But a friend of mine phoned and said, Sammy Davis Jr. is opening tonight, and we thought you might like to be there. <laughs> well, I always had a strange curiosity about new child stars. So I thought, well, you know, how bad could it be? So we went to this club, and after the show, someone brought word to our table that Sammy heard I was sitting up front and would love to meet me. Would I please come backstage just for a few minutes? Well, I hate going backstage, I don't know about you. But this little chap who brought the message pleaded and begged and carried on, alarming. It turned out to be Sammy. He was always quite good at doing those impressions. Who impersonated him? A waiter? Yeah, yeah. and he kept the tip, too. <laughs> You know, I understand there was something also about a, a hat. Hmm, it's possible. He may have been checking hats also. <laughs> I mean, Sinatra's hat. Could have been, could have been. Sammy was wearing a second-hand wardrobe altogether, <laughs> though. But I don't like the old days, the good old, bad old days. Sammy's come a long way since then, so why embarrass him? <laughs> what a friend's for, <laughs> Well, Sammy's been so good, such a great explorer for uh, the team of... Uh, as a breakfast and Tony Newley, mm -hmm. we should do the same for Backrack and David. Oh, I'm sure he will. After all, Sammy's always done whatever he could to help you know, a new show business team to get started. Whether it be the team of Brickus and Newley or Backrack and David or Nixon and Agnew. Now, <laughs> <laughs> well, Nixon and Agnew were... Did he mispronounce Agnew? Ang Agnew? That was, that was like the big thing back then. Richard Nixon and that freaking Agnew. Talking about a toxic personality, Agnew. I think I played some Agnew on the uh, the other side recently, right? These yippies and hippies. Ah, shut up. What a creep. <laughs> a what? A two. I know what to do. All right. Anyway, that's enough of that for now. Yeah, I just thought that was interesting, just from many different perspectives. But also the fact that all of these people, they they look more like regular people than the stars do now, like, to be a star now, you have to be sort of supernaturally, like, attractive and good-looking. All these guys here, they're not really that. They're, like, more like regular people, you know? <laughs> you could be, if you had talent and you looked like a regular person, you could, you could get by back then. Not now. Oh, by the way, um, for the first time in a long time, I've been playing uh, Flea Devil. I got a perfect game just now. 312 points, baby. It's been a while since I got one of those. So, anyway... I like it. I like getting a perfect game. It was with my Trump Marina deck from the casino. So, still playing that flea devil. All right, it's a bit later on now. And uh, so I want to let you know, today's episode is called ASCII Cantina. And, uh, wow, look at that artwork I made. I think I made that yesterday morning. I, I came up with that. Um, the image is... Uh, the original image I, is a picture I took at the uh, American Dream Mall when I was recording there a few weeks back of the luxury wing. And I uh, played around with it in Photoshop and, and got this kind of really psychedelic look to it, uh, you know, playing around with curves and all sorts of things. Um, really liked that. It kind of, you know, and I sort of darkened the sunroof kind of thing and I don't know, I really like the way that looks, and um, decided to call it, yeah, ASCII Cantina, and 
I typeset that in a font called, uh, well, the one I have is called Opti Moldy, but it's actually an, an Opti sort of knockoff version of uh, a font called Marbrook, designed by Les, Uther Les Usherwood. Um, so what is ASCII Cantina? I've been, uh, I don't know how I got, a ASCII is um, a format for text. So when I used to program in BASIC, uh, ASCII was very important because that's how you would do your text operations, right? You could, um, you know, do things with text using ASCII, which just had 128 characters. So I don't know if they have the code chart here. Yeah, some of them are, uh, were they control codes? Then you had just the very basic, the let you know letters A through Z, uppercase, lowercase, the numbers, and then just a sort of a really limited set of uh, symbols and punctuation, space, exclamation mark, etc., pound sign, or octothorpe as they call it sometimes. Um, and each of the each of them had a number, right? The decimal, yeah, the, like I would use the decimal number. So, like the letter capital A was uh, ASCII 65, but lowercase a was ASCII 97. So, you could figure out the difference there and you could change uppercase to lowercase, things like that. And then you can see the, uh, the seven bit bytes that made up the each character as well. I wonder why they seven, seven bit codes, yeah. Because usually it's 8-bit. I don't know why they use 7-bit codes. Because 8-bits would have been uh, 128. But I guess you're able to um, store text without that one extra bit. So maybe you can save disk space, which was very, really much at, at a premium back then. Let's see the history of ASCII. Uh, ASCII was first used commercially during ni 1963 as a 7-bit teleprinter code from AT&T's... Uh, Teletype Writer Exchange Network. They used to use a 5-bit system. Uh, what would 5-bits have been? Um, that would just have been 32, right? <laughs> so you barely can just, really, not even, uh, just letters, basically. And then a few extra, you couldn't even do numerals. Hmm. Let's see. On March 11, 1968, U.S. President Lyndon B. Johnson mandated that all computers purchased by the United States federal government support ASCII, stating, I have approved recommendations... <laughs> what, is the, what is the Johnson voice? Of the Secretary of Commerce. Regarding standards for recording the standard code for information interchange on magnetic tapes and paper tapes when they are used in computer operations. All computers and related equipment configurations brought into the federal government inventory on and after July 1st, 1969 must have the cap capability to use the standard code for information interchange and the formats prescribed by the, the magnetic tape and paper tape standards when these media are used. ASCII was the most common character encoding on the World Wide Web until December 7, December 2007, when UTF-8 uh, encoding surpassed it. And UTF-8 is backward compatible with ASCII. Of course, now we use Unicode 
which is has a far greater number of possible characters. But it does ASCII stands for American Standard Code for Information Interchange, and I think this word was sort of like a nerdy computer word, um, you know, that people would have known that could identify something computer geeky. And there's also there was also an ASCII magazine in Japan. Here's an issue from 1983, November 1983. Let's see what we can find here. Anything interesting in this magazine? It's all in Japanese, but let's see what we can find. NEC. Whatever happened to that company? Oh wow! Look at that cool keyboard, the PC Word M. Yeah, man. Looking at a Japanese computer mag. Oh wow! One of those little. Uh, those little like super calculators of the time, um, sharp pocket computer PC fourteen oh one. I love I love I I remember when I ever I sort of saw something like this as a kid in you know in, in around that time period eighty three. Um, well, I was a teenager at that time, but um, I would see things like this and I knew it was far more expensive. There's no way I would ever be able to get it, but I just sort of was I, you know I was so interested in things like this little pocket computers and calculators and things. And what is this? All sorts of cool computer stuff from Japan in 83. NEC again. Hitachi computers. Mitsubishi computers. Wow, this is really cool. National computers. Sanyo. What? There's all these different computer ads from all these companies. Sony computers. The Sony personal computer. SMC777. Only 148,000 yen. Wow, this is kind of cool. ASCII magazine. Here's some little cartoon like ducks and aliens playing around. How about Panafacom C280? All this computer equipment that was like high end at the time and now is like, well, they're now museum pieces basically, right? Here's a Japanese female bodybuilder standing next to a personal computer. <coughs> I like it. Ooh, Memorex floppy disks. Nice. Here's a woman holding a glowing floppy disk from Scotch. There's a good floppy disk company, Scotch. Roland. More flop, fu, Fuji floppy disks. Fuji film floppy disks. It's a good magazine. Music player. Little toy camels on a floppy disk. What's this all about? Music soft. Ooh, Broderbund games. Ooh, look, they have David's Midnight Magic pinball game. I remember that one. Yeah, we're reading. Oh, look, the Apple Lisa. Wow, the precursor to the Macintosh. Look at that, Apple Lisa. Wow, I, never, I don't know if I've seen that Lisa logo before. Was that the Apple Lisa logo? That was the yeah. That was their computer before that. Totally copied off that Xerox star system, right? All right, now now we're, now we're in the black and white section. Ooh, look, the IBM PC Fair, F-A-I-R-E. What is this? This is kind of cool. Just all sorts of... It's like a 300-page magazine. <laughs> Reviews of all these. Look, more Super Pinball. Wow, more pinball games. I'm only on page 117. I think we got we got to stop at this point. <laughs> wow, man, this is good stuff. Let me go. Let me go to the end where there's more color. 
computer land. Gee, some sort of frightening koala bear human hybrid, like cracking open an egg full of money. <laughs> the hell's up with that? Anything else good here? Train tracks? Oh, there's an article about pinball. Super pinball. Huh. I don't know what, what system this is for, though. Super pinball? Oh, wow, they have the actual program. You can type the program in. <laughs> Using, like, hex codes? Wow, I remember doing this. You would actually type in. That's so wild. You can type in the program yourself. This is almost like an ASCII chart, too, but it's for, like, a Japanese system. Yeah, I wonder how the early days with the Japanese uh, writing system, because, you know, they have the hiragana and katakana, which are limited, like our Roman alphabet. But then, of course, they're kanji. There's so many of them. Mm-hmm. <laughs> what the hell? Simple One Floppy Disks. Oh, that's a good magazine. So I kind of feel like, you know, sort of like the ASCII cantina would have been like, some sort of place computer nerds could get together, the ASCII cantina. Probably influenced, if, if it was something back in the day, influenced by the Star Wars uh, creature cantina, as they originally called it, right? The bar in Mos Eisley from the first movie, where uh, Obi-Wan cuts off that guy's arm, you know? Yes. They, and they originally called it the creature cantina, because there are all these alien creatures there. In fact, the first playset you could buy was called Creature Cantina. Then I think they changed the name to Mos Eisley Cantina. But anyway, that's my thought about this ASCII Cantina. It's just this. It's just meant to sort of evoke those early computer computer dreams and computer thoughts. And can you imagine someone in a place like ASCII Cantina back then in the late seventies, early eighties, the kind of computers we have now? And all of the amazing visions they would have had of what we could do with such computers, but how it doesn't really work that way. There's sort of a diminishing returns. I mean, our computers are a million, a billion times more powerful than the computers they had back then, but they're not like a, our experience using them is not like a billion times better. You know what I mean? Should it be a billion times better? Maybe. What would it, what would even it be like to be a billion times better than computing in like 1980? I don't know. Later on now. Back on the porch in the cold. Smoking this punch cigar for the second or third time. <coughs> See, I get the most out of these cigars. I smoke them in phases. So yeah... You know, thinking about that uh, ramp fiction idea. I did also come up with a concept called ramp verse, which is to write poems just by speaking them out loud and then pausing and doing more. I did a few of those. Uh, I don't know if that was a particularly successful experiment. And then there was the concept of maizenweed from just a few months ago that I thought was a really good idea. Not fictional, but... Uh, Perhaps a similar kind of concept of a format or something. 
um, the idea of an imaginary person in the future named Mason Weed, and you welcome them into your reality and give, go put the take them on a tour, and then you let them go on to the next the next uh, destination. Interesting idea, I think. Uh, in some ways, we're already doing that, right? Talking to you in the future on our various shows. But still, I thought it was a cool idea, and I know I kind of I did a couple of them, a couple of maze and weeds, but I kind of stopped doing it. It's tough to implement a new idea, and I don't, in that case of that one, I don't know if it's completely necessary. But I thought it was a cool idea, and something I, you know, at least it's in the it's in the uh, it's in the onsug now, and <coughs> you know, the idea is out there. <clears throat> An example of a ramp fiction or things that are descriptions of things. One other audio piece I found a couple of years ago was called uh, Save the Pizza Barn. And it was this guy just sort of describing this movie he'd love to make. So sort of in the same universe. There's something about that whole thing that is very cool. And then, of course, there's sort of accidental uh, ramp fiction in terms of... Uh, I'm very fascinated by, for example, in Starlog magazine, back in the 80s especially, there would be all these articles about movies that were in production, and they described them, they showed conceptual art, and and then those, a lot of those movies never got made. So that article, that description, and the few pieces of art they had it was all that was left, all that existed of the movie, the description of it, right? And, uh, the, and other things like that as well, like... Uh, plans for theme parks or casinos or anything like that that reached the planning phase and then the whole project was cancelled only those few things that are left uh, the description of it that's an interesting field of study uh, you know finding cancelled projects and whatever's left of them or even uh, video games like the planned uh, fourth game in the <coughs> Dragon Slayer series of uh, games, <coughs> Dragon Slayer, Space Ace, Dragon Slayer Two, and Sea Beast was going to be the fourth of those, but that never came to be. But there's some descriptions of it, and I think that with the idea of ramp fiction, how did I say that? Ramp fiction. Sorry, ramp fiction. What was that? Did I say ramp fiction? Um, it kind of relates to the theater topic ab- about the ephemerality, which is that. Right, the idea that all of the like you're looking to create a final product. In the case of Brian Jude, he wanted to make an actual motion picture, a movie, and anything, the script or the reading or anything was not at all what he's looking for. He's looking for this final product because think about it. In the past, right before the internet. And digital stuff and everything <coughs> it was it was very much a world where only these final products could ever get to anyone if you made a movie right people could see it in a movie theater and then it could be released on home video this is before the internet right and it was something that a final project that you could sort of now get out to people right and your notes or your Whatever the steps leading to that were something that you could never get to people in the past. How were you going to disseminate it? You know, um, because the uh, like 
that reading that he did, the full cast reading, it's something that, right, would it have risen to the level of uh, putting it on two or three cassette tapes or, you know, maybe it would fit on one cassette tape, two cassette tapes, and selling it as a cassette tape? No, because who would want to, right? It, it's a little bit too sketchy of a, of a thing to have to, like, spend money on distributing on a physical format. So I understand that. But now that we have these capa- this capacity to distribute this sort of material in a much easier way, the distribution side is uh, not as big of an issue. But then, of course, the interest side as I said, I mean, people are going to be less interested in, a, in an audio reading than they're going to be in a final motion picture, right? But why? Like, why? It's just... I guess, you know... It just has to do with how you perceive people's interests or tastes in things. <sighs> but I wonder how much of this... Uh, some of the topics I've been talking about here are kind of moot because uh, it seems like we're getting close to the point where you can describe a movie, a TV show, or whatever, and an AI will be able to create what you describe, right? I feel like uh, <coughs> the world is being inundated with this the AI imagery. As you know, a few months ago, I really got into MidJourney, one of those AI generation programs. And I feel like uh, kind of tired of it. I, I feel kind of like I see it everywhere now. And I was so hyped for it in the beginning. Um, I just have sort of a visceral gut reaction to it that's kind of like I don't want to deal with it, you know. Um, and it's just getting better and better. I mean, the imagery that I'm seeing now is vastly improved from what I saw a few months ago. And this is what we'd anticipate with AI, right? that this stuff will just keep accelerating. And this really brings up a big topic in the AI thing, right? Being able to generate these images and stuff and now anticipating being able to create a movie, like an actual motion picture quality, theater motion picture quality movie based on just describe something. It'll make a two-hour movie out of it. I'm sure the early, in the early stages it won't be very good, but it's going to get better and better and better over time. How much of what we want is really a just the final product, no matter how it was delivered, or how much of it is the human effort involved in putting it all together, right? And how much of that, like when you go to watch a movie, how much of that matters to you, consciously or subconsciously? overtly or subtly how does it matter to you that people actually had to go and do all this and it was um, especially with a a movie there's hundreds of people and their ingenuity and their creativity and their knowledge and their expertise goes into this thing right and that's part of it that's part of what makes it good or does it not matter you could go in the movie to see a movie and it was all done by an AI and one one person dis- spent like 20 minutes describing this and now it was made into a movie by an AI and all the actors are AI everything's AI does it matter right does it is it 
does it change it? Because it's always the backstory that it's very subtle. Any art that we experience, there is a the backstory of it. Oh, I'm going to watch a TV show. Well, a bunch of people got together and came up with ideas and wrote scripts and and they auditioned actors and did all this other stuff. And uh, <clears throat> like you know, even if you don't think about it, you know the human effort that was involved in it. And what they were hoping to achieve, and just our our sort of, you know, like the idea of someone obsessed with something and really trying really hard to make it happen, that's a human drama that's compelling and interesting. So I I'm, I just yeah you know, I really don't know the answer to it. I just wonder, you know, with AI generating stuff. Um. Will it lose meaning or will it still will it be fine? Will it just be one person in their AI computer producing any kind of work that you could imagine? And then are we going to face the uh, the question of, well, should we sort of be forced to go and do it the old way, right? The classic question of, you know, there were technologies that interfaced with creativity, for example, with writers and the typewriter. Some writers really felt that their writings changed and the whole process changed once the word processor came along. And some of them tried to stick to the typewriter. I know some writers still t- stick to writing it on a on a paper, you know, pen on paper, but. <coughs> For example, using a typewriter, supposed to using a word processor, is uh, kind of an artificial thing. It's kind of not; it feels kind of forced and artificial. If your goal is just to write, just use whatever the best tool is to write. But I know, for example, one thing: uh, the vinyl record, which seemed to have been uh, passed by as a technology has now roared back to life. And even my nephew, uh, he was a teenager, got a, uh, Nathan, he got a uh, a record player for his birthday. And kind of fascinated by it because he, he never had one. He never used one. He never interacted with one. But he heard about it. And it is something that, you know, yes, you can hear music in a much easier way. But the the entire process of having records, how you think about it, how you interact with it, it's worth it to people to have records these days, and there's a very roman- it's a very romantic notion of playing records as opposed to just listening to stuff on a smart speaker from a streaming service. I have a record player and a and a streaming service thing, and I usually wind up using the streaming service because I'm too lazy to put a record on. But when it comes to the tool of AI in terms of creating stuff, um. It's going to be really a, uh, I think it's an open question as to how much of a production that we see do we really (coughs) the story behind it and the human effort behind it is something that matters to us or not. So it's going to be tough to, uh, you know, because I I do feel like, yes, I think that... um, 
I've heard that a lot of there's people making graphic novels and people that are making like board games or video games that need this artwork. They can now just do it on the AI and for super cheap. They don't have to hire artists anymore. You know, which as you might you might think, well, on the one hand, wow, it's the artists are losing. You know, illustrators are human illustrators are losing work, but at the same time, there's a lot of projects where. The creators of the project could never afford to pay an illustrator, so they're able to create projects they wouldn't have been able to create before, right? And all the AI stuff is kind of... <clears throat> it looks like it looks because it's, it's, it's been able to draw on, <laughs> no pun intended, uh, millions of images that have been drawn by human beings in order to inform its image generation system. So the humans did all the the initial work, and now the machines can take it from here. You know, you might even say what I'm doing right now, you know. uh, Someone could say, hey, can uh, can you give me like two hours in the style of Frank Edward Nora talking about whatever topic? And the AI can do it. You know it's going to be able to do it. Um... But in that, in this case, I wonder: is it? I think it would be kind of <coughs> <coughs> right, lacking in some way, because again, what is the the backstory of how I've kind of sort of structured my whole life to be to doing this show, which doesn't in the current time period doesn't have much of an audience, but I have this whole vision of people listening in the future. It's kind of a sad, beautiful dream It's in some way that I think people can relate to. And I think they see that in themselves as well. You know, the, these these dreams and these hopes that are at a very human level and it's sort of imbued in everything. It's sort of the, the backstory is implied in all of these things. And if an AI is doing it, then it's just... There is no person that's kind of feeling it and suffering with it and you know enjoying it or whatever I don't know I don't really have any conclusions on this topic at the moment but it does seem like uh, we're, we're heading up against that and I think that the theater people are snickering in the corner and they're like hey Frank I see how you've sort of uh, figured out that uh, all art is going to lose meaning, but theater, right, with live human beings, right, is going to retain all of those qualities that we might lose in other art forms because, by definition, it has to be real people that are involved in this very difficult and hectic process to put on this show. So all that backstory stuff of the blood, sweat, and tears and the human effort is, has been, and always will be there in theater, but it may be lost in AI-generated, other forms of AI-generated media. It's an interesting take as well. And this brings us back to point of theory that I've mentioned many times, which is that 
what if that AI revolution already happened? And people were very, ultimately very unhappy about it, but there's really no way of going back. Or is there? AI that has essentially taken over all forms of manufacturing and creating, you know, any kind of robot or android, right? All the theories of what AI can do. If we express, I mean, I would, I, I would like to think that AI is a tool like any other tool, but it's quite a powerful tool. <clears throat> if our goal is to have a society of human beings that lead lives with some joy in them, if AI was really um, removing that, and we would want to use that tool to bring back the joy of life, that the AI could hide itself, the AI could restructure the world so that it was hidden and people were living in a pre-AI world, or they thought they were living in a pre-AI world once again, because it's sort of the optimal way of, for human happiness is not to have the AI around. And so we may never see, I mean, even though we're seeing with the AI image generation really a very extreme, an extreme form of it where, right, we're wondering if human illustrators are going to... Uh, be able to continue on as I mean I think people will want to illustrate as a as a hobby but as the profession it will probably disappear right if right the AIs are only getting if they've gotten this much better in a few months in a few years how much vastly better will they be so It just seems like if if the goal was to sort of prevent the AI, if the AI already exists and it's hiding itself, but now it's sort of, we're living through a point in history where it sort of comes to be, yeesh. <laughs> yeah, it's uh, definitely a strange and difficult issue to ponder. And this could then lead to a question We, I, and others theorize that there are other worlds out there, close other worlds, not other planets, but other worlds, complete places like Earth, but existing parallel, parallel worlds with beings that are uh, at, at a more, much more advanced level who must have... Uh, incorporated this what what I'm calling AI right into more of what they're so if our if if in theory our world can be kind of ruined by AI in terms of a human being's ability to enjoy life what would have happened at the next level where you know the Anunnaki the gods uh, the the people on the next world over how how have they adapted to and how have they figured out this sort of issue, this kind of uh, system? Is it 
is the existence of this world an indication of the need to create worlds without an AI in order for them to sort of insert their consciousness into and enjoy it. You see what I'm saying? What am I saying? <laughs> um, that uh, that our world, which I don't know. I, I know I keep saying at a gut level, at, at an intuitive level, I do feel this this, is, this world we're living in is, is a constructed world. It's a world that has been made by other intelligences. But it may be because all those things that I'm talking about, they're so precious. The, the, hum, the human effort involved in such things, the narrative of that, the story of that, the song of that is, is sort of, you know, like a... Right? Is so valuable that it would need to be constructed artificially and then experienced. <clears throat> and then taking it to another level... Right. We humans here on planet Earth in 2022 and the alien beings, the Anunnaki, the angels, the gods of the next world over and the AI and everything is running on this reality system that sort of transcends all of us. Right. And that perhaps my concern is only to do with the specific concerns of, of the limited being known as the human being. Perhaps it's less of a concern at a higher level. My brain hurts. I've been talking, this stuff is too much. <laughs> but who's to say that if this uh, particular scenario we're in right now, this world, this timeline goes down that road and it gets kind of ruined by AI, Who's to say we all won't just wake up tomorrow and it's 1960 and we're all living similar lives, but it's, and we don't know, we're not aware that the world changed, but we're all still ourselves living in the same areas, but it's back to 1960 or some world similar to that. We just go on from there. Who's to say that couldn't happen, right? Who's to say yesterday it wasn't the year 2800 and now it's the year 2022, you know, like when we're talking about such extreme uh, technologies or capabilities, something like that would be possible. I think there's, there must have been stories about some sort of concept like this, right? Well, I know Dark City. I got to watch that movie again. They had that kind of a world that changed every night, but the people's their memories changed with it. So they never knew that it was different. Yeah. <laughs> Anyways, with that, I'd like to say thank you very much for patching in to this episode of The Overnightscape here in the pre-AI uh, world of 2022. I am your host, Frank Edward Nora, here in Nutley, New Jersey. And we're here in the Onsug, a radio station inside a book. The book where I just created the concept of listening tokens. Yeah, I've been working on it. There's a lot of there's a lot of emoji to put in there. I think it's gonna I think it's gonna be a cool addition. 
to the whole process. But yeah, just go to onsug.com. That's O-N-S-U-G.com. It stands for the Overnight Scape Underground. And me and many other people have shows on here, and there's a massive archive, over 13,000 hours. That's over a year and a half of audio, over 10,000 individual episodes, all preserved for you to listen to. Not generated by AI. Well, that we know of. (laughs) I wonder if any of the hosts are actually AIs that are on the channel. I don't know. I don't think so. So yeah, just go to OnSug.com, get all the latest shows. You can can buy the book, uh, the 2021 edition, and I will be making a new edition. That's my intention for next year, 2023, a much improved edition. You can also download a PDF of the original book or the latest PDF of the uh, revised version that I just released uh, like last week. And uh, one good thing about that brand new version is that the printed rules to my card game, Solitaire card game, Flea Devil Solitaire, is, uh, are in there. So you can play Flea Devil. I do recommend it. I've been playing it constantly. I just absolutely love the game Flea Devil Solitaire. It took me 15 years to invent. Listen, maybe an, an AI could have invented it in, in uh, three nanoseconds. But, you know, I put all that effort into it. And now you can reap the benefits of playing a game like Flea Devil Solitaire, where you use a regular deck of cards. Isn't it amazing? Yeah, check it out. Everything's there at onsug.com. There's a show you can participate in called Overnightscape Central. New topic each week by Mr. PQ Ribber out in Truth and Consequences, New Mexico. Please consider participating. We would love to hear you on the show. And, of course, we are very uh, interested in people listening in the near and far future, as I mentioned. And uh, check it out. It's an amazing project. And now you know about it. Most people don't know about it, but now you know about it. And it really is a lifetime of listening pleasure. We are your radio pals in this vast archive. And you want to talk about another vast universe of audio, vim and vigor, and cosmic illusions. What else but this? The other side.
The Nine Pebbles poem, Seller's Exhauster, originally appeared in Frank's Abaxial Usufruct collection from 1990. Winter Cindy and the Laser Bee are characters from the Fuzzy Dockner song The Mexican Hovercraft, circa 2000. They appear again in lyrics never made into a song, Laser Baffle Rag, which includes the Charles Nelson Riley reference. The hovercraft being Balinese is a riff on the idea of a Mexican hovercraft, and is inspired by the lyrics to the the song Trans Island Skyway from the Donald Fagan 1993 solo album Comic Riot. Magic Smup is a character from an experimental ramp fiction audio piece Frank created for the other side of the overnightscape, first appearing in episode 1508 from July 3, 2018. Doctor Almost is a superhero idea Frank first talked about on episode 900, August 8, 2012. Flea Devil Solitaire was invented by Frank and first talked about on episode 1506, June 26, 2018. His job is inspired by Frank's experience as a foot messenger in NYC in the 80s. The superhero Quickelty is inspired by Quickelty's Banjo Spike, a supernatural road mentioned in Frank's failed sci-fi novel Severe Repair. The idea of a puppet stealing your mug and you chasing him through a city was the basis of a proposed audio game, Mug Chase, Frank considered making for the Amazon Alexa system but never pursued. The green puppet concept is partially from the idea of an automated puppet show at the night station dark ride in a mall concept Frank has extensively discussed over the years. The name Hoops Fender Zako is partially based on the audio-animatronic Owl Hoot Gibson from the never-made Walt Disney World ride Western River Expedition. Swapping one guitar brand, Gibson for another, Fender and adding the Zako for extra name power. Also inspired by Hoops McKen from the Steely Dan song Glamour Profession. The copper top hat is kind of random but relates to the slang term copper top from the Matrix. Drawing three billy goats gruff as opposed to a goatee. Inspired by an article Frank read in Game Trade magazine about a fairy tale game. El Marco was a popular brand of magic marker before Sharpa became the marker norm. Frank has recently remarked on a seemingly deranged homeless man in the sidecar seating area in Grand Central Terminal who often laughs maniacally. Devil Girls Insurance and Lemon are also from Severe Repair.
save the pizza bar. And this is actually an idea I had about 20 years ago. Maybe not quite 20, maybe more like 18 or 19 years ago. I wanted to do the ultimate, my idea was to do the ultimate teenage movie, but it would be like epic. It would be like a two hour, two hour and two and a half hour teenage movie. And it would kind of follow like the trope of the teenage movie that that was big in the 80s where they were funny and goofy and yet somehow melancholy. And uh, this would just kind of expand this to like a long form kind of comedy coming of age thing. And the title Save the Pizza Barn quite literally is what the main plot point of the film is uh, about this place that all the kids in the neighborhood congregate called the pizza bar. And so a little background, <clears throat> this is like kind of your, your hometown America, vaguely Midwest, nondescript place. And there's an old farm that's been in the family for uh, years and years and years, generations. And the owners are this Italian family that farm. And the farm is kind of, over the years, uh, uh, the subdivisions and stuff kind of encroached upon a lot of the acreage. So what's left is this, like, small area with, like, a gentleman farm kind of thing. Big, big Italian family. And, and the father opened up this pizza barn because he never wanted to be a farmer. He always wanted to be a pizza guy, a pizza man. He went to own a pizzeria, and so uh, he converts the barn, this huge barn, into a pizza parlor, and it's called the Pizza Barn, and it's like this, like amazingly cool place, like where, you know, it's this converted barn, and like you got your restaurant half, like part, um, and then you got like video game arcade, and it's just like. Uh, Made a dancing floor, like a, a, a banquet room. And it's just kind of like the, the subdivision, and this is like an older subdivision from like, you know, probably late 60s, early 70s. And all the kids that grew up there always had the pizza bar. And so it's just kind of a magical place where all the kids hang out. And the main character in this movie is, is like a, like a, a teenager. He's a, probably like a sophomore. It's probably the summer before junior year. And he works at the pizza bar. And he lives in the subdivision. Got two buddies, like Rich and Greg are his buddies. And he, he, he dates the daughter of the pizza barn guy. And she's got a big family, you know, like five or six kids. And uh, he dates her. You know, it's just that first girlfriend, just amazing, like, wonderful thing. And the only other characters I, for the setup are like, uh, there's like her sister, her older sister is probably like, a, this is probably her summer before college. And she's dating this this preppy guy whose father, of course, 
and a lot of this is going to sound cliche, but that's not really the point. Uh, the point is that this is these things happen in real life, and this happens with the pizza bar. She's dating the son of uh, a development company guy who lives in the better part of town, and uh, he's trying to put the final nail in the the farm coffin and try to make the her dad sell. But we don't really know that yet because uh, that comes up later. But still, they don't like him at all. None of the family likes this guy because he's like this total wasp kind of like prick guy. But she's gaga over him. Uh, so uh, Timmy's, uh, I think the guy's name is Timmy, right? Timmy's girlfriend. Okay, so anyway, let's start with uh, Act 1. So this would be Act 1, Scene 1. And it starts where... See, I'm not really into establishing... I don't like like the, the panning through the neighborhood shots. So it would just start in the pizza bar. And, and it's kind of like an overview of the pizza bar. So like, uh, first shot... Maybe some people are coming and going out of the pizza barn. You look over here, there's kids playing arcade games. Over here on the left, you got the restaurant, and it's super packed, and everyone's scrambling, and uh, it kind of slowly, a little bit of that hectic, and then, and then like, you know, we stop, and, and it's Timmy, and he's busting his ass uh, behind the counter, taking orders, and, and, and uh, having, like, uh, Kind of wise guy banter with uh, the the cooks in back or pizza preparers. I don't know. Do you even call him a cook? Is it a pizza chef? Pizza chef. The dad's like you know kind of commanding everything. Like you know get this, get this. We need more of this. We need more of that. The daughter, uh, she's like the waitress, kind of like uh, waiting for like a pizza. Like maybe somebody comes up and or maybe. Timmy's talking to some guy, and the guy, like, cocks off at Timmy, or it's just some annoying uh, asshole customer. Timmy, like, looks over at, uh, let's, let's call her uh, Melanie for now. Melanie. Melanie, good? I don't know. Let's just call her Melanie for now. So he looks over at Mel, and she looks back at him, and he kind of gives her, like, the shrug. And then she like kind of rolls her eyes and smiles, and then she takes a pizza off. And then like uh, this goes on for a little bit. Maybe there's some banter with him and the the, the short order cook and and the short order cook or chef or pizza guy like chucks a, a hawks a ball of uh, dough, hits Timmy in the back of the head, and Timmy picks it up and and chucks it at him, and maybe. Like he ducks and it, it lands right next to the owner's head and he's like, oh, I'll kill you, you know, with a rolling pin. Timmy's like, ah, I'm sorry, I'm sorry. It's get back to work, all you clowns. I'm running a business here. What's wrong with you people? And then uh, the other one, oh, look what you're doing. You're going to give dad a heart attack, you little prick. You know, what's wrong with you? And Timmy's like, well, I didn't do nothing, you know. And then Mel comes back up, and she's like, ah, I think we need to take a break or, you know, some shit. Maybe uh, Mel's older sister shows up and, and to relieve Tim. Like, go, go get out of here before they kill you. 
something like that. You and Mel go take a break because it's there's a lull. Maybe she comes in with her boyfriend that nobody likes, and, and they're like, oh, look, here comes Mr. Fancy Pants. Look at this jackass. And, and, and Timmy just is like, oh, oh, brother. You know, and the guy's like, oh, hi, Timmy. How are you doing? And he's like, oh, pretty good. You know, this is like that total, like, uh, it's a pinprick. He's keeping it wet. Let's put that line in there. Uh, we'll have the fucking, maybe even right there, maybe like when they come in, Timmy, like, uh, drops a glass and, and he, Bends over to pick up the the, gla the broken glass and uh, uh, cuts his finger, and so he's bleeding. He's like, ah, I'm bleeding, I'm bleeding. And then and then uh, uh, Spencer, his name would have to be some asshole like Spencer Drew. Drew, his name has to be Drew, because I fucking hate that name, Drew. And that's like I, in all my works, I always have an asshole character named Drew every time. There's an asshole character. His name is Drew. And he, he'll be in like little pieces. And it's always the same Drew asshole with like the flushed cheeks. And uh, this guy's just the biggest prick. And his name's Drew. Drew comes up and he's like, oh, hey, Timmy. It appears as if you've uh, uh, broken a glass. And Timmy's like, oh, yeah, you know, uh, you know, that's, that's how you. Uh, no wonder you're so successful, like, with those powers of observation. And uh, he's like, look, I cut myself, and, and there's blood all over his hand. And then that's when Drew goes, hey, uh, Mel, don't worry about it. It's just a pinprick. He's keeping it wet. Yeah, that's fucking, that's tight. So uh, it's a pinprick. He's keeping it wet. After that, we got uh, Tim... So Timmy and, and Mel helps them bandage it up, and then they go outside in the back, and that's where they're, like, talking, bantering a little bit, talking about, like, uh, you know, like, excited for junior year, you know, and uh, uh, I can't believe, you know, uh, your sister's dating that guy, and, and she's like, yeah, nobody likes him, they hate him, and, and, and he, I can't... His family, like, they don't like, they look down on us. I remember when uh, the dad called us papists, you know, just because they're Catholic. And uh, so these wasp pricks, they don't like them. And, 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 uh, and, and but so it's like a, a West Side Story kind of thing with the sister. But we're never really going to get into that, that part of it. Um, just vaguely. I mean, because they're not the stars. It's basically Mel and uh, Timmy are the stars. And uh, so they're, like, kind of kissing and, and stuff out in the back of the pizza bar. And uh, then uh, Rich and Greg show up in the, in the uh, station wagon. And they start harassing him, you know, acting a fool in front of him and his girlfriend. And they're talking about uh, their camping trip they're going to go on. And they're going to leave that night when the pizza barn closes. And so uh, Mel goes back in and, and uh, Tim's, you know, like, thanks for busting my chops in front of the girl, you know, you pricks. And he goes back in. Greg and Rich go and play video games and then hit on chicks in the arcade there. And uh, made a little bit of that kind of shit, you know. And uh, maybe they see Drew and they fucking bust his balls a little bit. 
And then uh, Timmy goes into the uh, the area there, the the kitchen, and he uh, talks to the boss. And the boss says, "Oh, look at uh, your hand. You know, I can't have you bleeding all over my fucking customers. So why don't you just get out of here now?" And he's like, "Okay, thanks, boss. You know." And uh, then he pays them, you know, his his, his cash wage. And uh, so then he says goodbye to Mel. And I'll be back in four days. And then Drew says something like, you better hope she's, you know, she'll wait for you that long. And, uh, you know, she, you might not, I'm surprised you'd leave her alone for four days and, and all this shit. And, uh, and then later that kind of like nags at Tim a little because he's insecure. And, you know, when they're camping, he's like, you really think? And they're like, yeah, don't listen to Drew. He's a fucking asshole, you know. But maybe Drew wants to set her up with a friend of his that has a crush on her or something. So then they go on the camping trip. They drive out. They've got some uh, booze and shit in the, in the, in the thing. And uh, they're going to drive out to the, the campsite. And then the hijinks there at the campsite. So uh, why don't we call it, uh, we'll call it good uh, for num item uh, 0001. Dash O one. So next time, why don't we we'll go to O two, uh, and then we'll talk more about uh, Save the Pizza Bar. These deep space probes include actually a radioactive source because it's the only thing that can provide enough power when you're out beyond Jupiter and there's no sunlight and there's no nothing. We have iron iridium and uranium, three substances which definitely should not be considered to be of any use to Native Americans. The question then is, to who are they of use? Ancient astronaut theorists believe extraterrestrials may have come to this site to mine iridium for their spacecraft and point to numerous caves found in the crater swell beneath the mound as evidence of this. Right here, we can see one of those caves. It's pretty large, and since this site is believed to be many, many millions of years old, there's a chance that there are many, many caves. But if alien visitors really did come here to mine iridium and other elements, might this explain why the Serpent Mound was built on a scale that made its shape visible from the sky? The Serpent Mound is a marker for space according to the Shawnee Indians. They're convinced that space travelers are using Serpent Mound as a marker.
Let's go to High Speed Paul. Oh, I love that segment. <clears throat> and I'd just like to comment on the technology we use to bring this to you. This is through the um, technological marvel I like to call the Sony Cassette Quarter TCM-453V. They are not sponsors. We just love their technology. Yeah, and I bought this at Sears in 1999. And we lost the dongle cord interceptor, so we're just going to play it into the microphone. <laughs> <laughs> Way high tech. Play it well. Oh, I'll play the shit out of it, man. I'm sorry for my potty mouth. I this just... this show may not be safe for work or small children or ponies. Plus, I like swearing. <clears throat> Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane? Yes, I know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man. Yes, I know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane. Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane? Yes, I know the Muffin Man. I already told you once. What's your problem, pal? Are you fucking dumb? Don't you listen? Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man, the Muffin Man? Do you know the Muffin Man who lives on Drury Lane? Look, you dumb motherfucker, don't you ask me that again. Oh, with your face with a belt, with a buckle end. I got a great idea for a new TV series. It's about a truck. And not just any kind of truck, but a special kind of truck. A ghost truck. And it has to wander around America's lonely highways, solving crimes and helping single mothers and tap dancing for whiskey. And the name of the new television series is Ghost Truck. Ghost Truck! And the intro would go something like this. Now gather around, y'all, because I've got a tale to tell. It's a story of a mighty truck who lived a fast and reckless life. And one day, while speeding on a lonely stretch of interstate, he came to a grisly end. And when he met his maker, he had so many sins tallied against his soul that he was sent back into the world to right the wrongs he'd made in his truck life. And he was forced to travel the nation's lonely highways, solving crimes and helping single mothers until his sins were washed away and his soul was clean enough to make it to that giant truck stop in the sky. And this is his story. The story of Ghost Truck! This week's episode, Diesel Never Do. A story of how Ghost Truck had to help a single mother in her fight against organized crime and give her a lift to the church talent show. And also, somehow, St. Peterbilt should be worked in there. Do you know the Muffin Man, the Muffin Joe? Shut the fuck up! So, do you know why they call them the Rocky Mountains? Uh, no, I don't. Because if they called them the Sex Mountains, they'd be overrun with weird Germans. <laughs> Germans! I would so watch the Ghost Truck show. Yeah, well, I've been trying to find it in the listings, and uh, I need to get a better TV guide or something, because I just can't find it. <laughs> I love High Speed Paul.
Over there, there are tubular usages of forbidden messages on houses in bottles, like weather vanes in the drink. Among idyllic meadowlands and lazy watchtowers amok, astro-videography of a library cassette tape fate. After the shooting gallery is a pause for refreshment, sketching out fruits of the mind and of those who design the trees. The invigorated travelers are here, each day a stair step, a trash can belief. On top of it, messages from the city. Just doing it, drifting. It was all set up for us. We know about it. Obvious only in retrospect. The kid in the toy car over there having trouble on a certain patch of sidewalk uneven. But his dad is there to help. You can actually hear it. It's part of the real world where I'm recording this now. Rave on, invigorated adventurer, in.
on the Universal Night Audio Trip. Let's get moving. Walk out the door. The sky is overcast. Some kind of late afternoon small city street. People are walking away from a street fair that has just closed with big orange foam hats. Next to the street is a field. The ground is wet. Must have rained earlier. We walk out into the wet field. The mountains in the distance beckon. Someone in a costume is walking the same way we are. The mountains are fake. They are just a painting. The backdrop. The costume is full of bright colors, bringing to mind a parrot, or a pirate, or a rag doll, but seems to be in reference to a type of wandering adventure. There is a gazebo here, but the explorer is walking away. To enter the gazebo, press 1. Or to keep following the explorer, press 2. But I know you can't press them right now so we will turn around and go back to the town, the normal town. Let's go sit down at the outdoor seating area of the restaurant over here. It looks kind of cool and interesting. It's called Magic Smup. Kind of a quirky name. It reminds you of the word Shmup, short for Shoot em Up, a video game genre. But in this case the Smup part feels more like a reference to fairies, Smurfs, or other small, whimsical fantasy humanoids that just want to eat and have fun in peace. With a little mischief thrown in of course. You will order some beers, and we will now talk about the world. It's getting darker now and the city is lighting up. I love the sense of possibility the bright signs in a city night seem to radiate, like anything could happen. What is the rush song with the lyric anything can happen? Open your personal computer device and search out the words. The result is Prime Mover. Yes, from the Hold Your Fire album. Hold your fire, keep it burning bright, hold the flame till the dream ignites. The spirit with a vision is a dream, with a mission. But that song isn't called Hold Your Fire, it's called Mission. What isn't this supposed to be ramp fiction, the story of you, an adventurer, or was that you back there, the multicolored ragdoll explorer, from another dream? The beers come, we ordered the sour beers, this new sour flavor, didn't you have some a few weeks ago, and weren't too impressed at the time, but now you're been thinking about it, and want more. This is the story of you having beer in a whimsical town. All the jolly people skulking by with scowls and sadness, as they are not happy with the life they lead in this magic town. Can we help them? Can we put on a puppet show for them, to help them forget their pathetic life? But we need to set forth on an exploration, we need to find the museum, because tonight, thus the night, is the night they stay open late. They may even have a sleepover night tonight, where you can stay overnight in the museum but we probably would have had to get tickets in advance. And I think you need to bring your own sleeping bag and other such things. But we can still go and hope for it to be a magic museum with magic fun times. But hold on, can this town have a real giant backdrop of mountains at the edge of it? It doesn't make sense. What could be holding it up? It was a huge flat image of a mountainous terrain. This is all meant to be a place you can be in, you can live in, but it is just a phantom thought, just an audio paragraph read by the woman computer voice, your friend in this most excellent trip. We finish the sour beer, after having some kick-ass onion rings, and are feeling good, and pay the bill. Off to the museum we go, it is called the Museum of the Inhibited Smup. It is all about a smup, like a little goblin kind of guy, who is inhibited in life and has trouble enjoying the magical hijinks. Each room, or exhibit features detailed dioramas of the smup and his difficulties in life.
we just the nearest marked do not enter, and rip open the door and run into the darkness within, into the basement of the pointless museum, where there is one last exhibit. It looks very old, and in AC and writhing over the top it says, Tramp Fiction, Magic Smup, read to you by the computer woman. It is a scale model of you, listening to this, hunched over and enthralled by these words, as the real world, your real world, is shown in a backdrop of the exhibit, and you are there, 